from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator living in Madison, Wisconsin. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of Twitter and video games. I'm known as Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. And today I've got a special interview coming your way from a good friend of mine named Shay Crowell. Uh, it's been a busy summer, people coming to see me, uh, and I was really happy to see Shay. And we sat down and talked about teaching and union thuggish and choral harmony and LGBTQ issues and a whole host of other stuff. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. And uh, yeah, I'll be back one of these days with a regular type show. And I'll also be bringing more interviews because I really like talking to people uh, that you ought to know about. So enjoy the interview with Shay. Get in touch, as always, Duke Scath on Twitter or ESP at FBESP.org on the web, uh, email, whatever. Holler at your boy and enjoy the interview. So we are here with Shay Crowell. Shay is an educator, a choral performer, a union organizer, and a lot of other things as well. I went to school with her at New College and we've known each other for more than 20 years. And I wanted to bring her on the show in order to talk about education and union activism and the age of right-to-work states and lots of other stuff. So, uh, Shay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate being here. Yeah. So I want to start with education. And you've been teaching for more than 20 years, yeah? Yes. Okay. Um, so that means we must have known each other for at least 25, We've 30? We've known each other for 25, 25 years, Eric. years. Wow, that's a long time. 25 years in August. There you go. Yeah. When you were a student in middle school, high school, if there's things you remember about elementary, by all means, what stood out to you about the education process? What did you think was missing? What was most important to you about the classes that were good? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Reflecting on my own educational experience, I often found myself at odds with my teachers in terms of how they treated their students. I really got into it with my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Smith because there was this boy in the class who just struggled academically and struggled to stay in his seat, but he was so nice. And she paired him with me, right? We had to be seatmates. And I just thought, (laughs) I just thought she treated him so awful. It's like she had no compassion and no patience with him. And so one day after class was over, I went up to her desk and I just told her what I thought of how she was treating him. It's one of my earliest memories of school, fifth grade. Um, I assume she took it well and thanked you for your input and she thought made was, some changes. She did, actually. She really? Thought, she did. She thought wow. it was hilarious. And um, she told my mom about it because, you know, I was my mom was an elementary school teacher. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> so um, she told my mom about it. And my mom was uh, kind of proud of me, actually, um, for speaking my mind and and waiting for the appropriate time and using respectful language and I don't, I don't know yeah it just seems like I see a problem I think we should fix it here's how we should fix it right how did your mom being a teacher impact you as a student do you think <laughs> my mom being a teacher made it impossible for me to to say oh it's the teacher's fault 
oh, it's because my teacher doesn't like me. Um, I was always had to go to school. There was no excuse. I always had to do what the teacher asked because the teacher was always reasonable. But when I ran into some trouble in school, in middle school, <laughs> I was surprised that my mom had my back. I had a seventh grade math teacher who, she and I were like peas and carrots. We just did not get along. And then it started to affect my grades where she would lose my assignments. Like she actually lost, like lost my assignments and that's an air quotes. Mm -hmm. um, and I had grades on them and she had zeros in her grade books. And so when my mom found that out, because at first, you know, she was like, no, you need to do what the teacher says. And this is obviously your problem to solve. Right. Um, so there was a lot of self-advocacy first. But when push came to shove, she went up and talked to that teacher, got my grade fixed, and had me moved out of that class. Mm. Were you ever a student in your mom's class? Was she ever your teacher? No, okay. no. Because my mom was a substitute, and I had her for like two days in history in eighth grade. And it was, <laughs> it was rough. I don't know I how people so. do that. Yeah. She was a first grade teacher when I was in first grade, and I really wanted to be in her mm. class. Um, but she flat refused. She's like, no, that's not going to work out. And then she switched to fifth grade and was a fifth grade teacher when I was in fifth grade. Um, and I did not want her <laughs> as my teacher that year. Sure. So gratefully, she agreed with me. That, that would be a bad, bad choice. Sure. When did you know you wanted to be a teacher? Was that an early thing? No. When you met me. Um, at Around 1993? 93. 93 um, my major was going to be um, biological psychology. And I chose New College because I was able to design that major. Because it wasn't an official major at more than about four or five colleges at that point. Mm -hmm. So I was taking a lot of psych classes and biology classes and neurobiology. I took that my second year at New College. And it kicked my ass. I liked the lab, but the class was just... It wasn't beyond me, but it was more rigor than I was... It was more work than I was willing to put into it. <laughs> And really that in combination with the lab, I decided that lab work was not, it wasn't my passion, that I preferred more interaction with people, but I preferred the practical application of what was coming out of biological psychology. I wanted to see that in education. So I took a semester off, I took a semester off and I worked at a daycare center mm. full time and thought a lot about what I wanted to do. And I started to reflect back on some of the things that had brought me joy um, when I was in high school and middle school. And, it, you know, it was all about teaching. I used to tutor. I was an algebra tutor for two years, three years in high school. And that came out of the fact that when I first took algebra, I struggled, like, couldn't get it. And it was that was one of those things where my mom stepped up and was just like, no, we're going to make sure you get this. There were no excuses there. So the teacher was right. It was my fault that I wasn't learning it. And so she had a conference with the teacher and um, had me up there for before school help every morning until I got my act together. So I learned algebra <laughs> really, really well to the point where I really actually enjoyed tutoring and um, enjoyed algebra and enjoyed math after that. My senior year, I would skip school and go to my mother's fifth grade class and teach it. And that was the weirdest part, because she never questioned why I wasn't in school myself. <laughs> why I should have been in calculus and was showing up in her class to teach random aspects of history or something that I learned in my biology class or uh, whatever. I think my senior year, I skipped calculus 30-something times. 
by the end of that year. Yeah. That, was a, that was a lot of going to her class and teaching. <laughs> sure, sure. And you enjoyed that experience, obviously. I did. I working really did. with those kids. Did. did you think that the age was a good fit at that early experience? Or did you just, here was a class I could get into and weren't maybe thinking about how old the kids were? I wasn't thinking about the, the, how old the kids were. Sure. I was just thinking about how interesting it was and fun it was to had that interaction where I was saying something that they found interesting and they were asking questions and follow-up questions and then there was dialogue breaking out. I, re- I just really enjoyed that energy. Sure. So you then went on to get certified. When did you do your student teaching? I did my student teaching in the fall of 97. Mm-hmm. And where was that? That was at, what was it, Riverview High School? Riverside? Riverview High School in Sarasota. Mm-hmm. It's this monster high school. How many? Do you um, remember how many students or how big in some way? Uh, probably pro- at least 3,000 at that wow. school. I mean, I went back and saw it when I was down in Sarasota mm-hmm. four years ago. Mm-hmm. It looked like an airport. Yeah. Like it was huge, That's way bigger than I remember. Body. Sure. I-, I would say it's probably 5,000 now. How did that go? How was your uh, supervising teacher? Mr. Adams. Uh, let's see. He was, he was quiet. He was a tiny man who seemed really interested in um, the Bible and in not being in the class. <laughs> <laughs> and did that suit you? Did you want someone there helping and walking you along? Or did you want to be, as I was, thrown into the deep end and just let me figure out how to swim? I kind of enjoyed the deep end. There, there wasn't a lot of support, but I didn't feel like I really needed it. I didn't have, I didn't have problems with classroom management or control. I definitely knew my content area. And it was fun to be able to to just experiment and try new things in the classroom, taking risks, designing stuff and seeing how they played out. I loved that student teaching experience. I also worked with another teacher to do student teaching in economics. So Mr. Adams was US history. And then I can't remember this other teacher. I think it was Taylor was his name. Uh, he was my partner for economics. And I didn't think I would like economics because I'd only taken a couple of classes in it. But I, I loved I loved the classes, but I didn't know that I would enjoy teaching it until I actually taught it. And then it became a passion. Like, I loved teaching econ. Why? Actually, I found taking the classes themselves to be kind of transformative in how I viewed the world and in my understanding of the way things worked. Taking those classes helped me understand the history that I had been learning and why some of the movements, social movements, um, grassroots movements happened. And being able to, to look at history and to look at the state of the world today through a new, a new lens was, was really fun. And I wanted to help students better understand their world as well. And I felt like economics was a great way to do it. History is just our story, but putting that story in a context, that's economics. What was the hardest thing about your student teaching experience? Finding the time to do it all. It was uh, quite an immersive experience. Did you have classes while you were doing your student teaching? Oh, yes. Yes. Now, I wasn't supposed to, um, but I had some credits I needed to finish up just to to graduate on time. So I was was, like doing a couple of classes at a junior college and teaching, and then I was working. So finding time to do all of that, plus um, grading the papers and making the lesson plans and staying a chapter ahead of the kids... (laughs) It was definitely a 60, 80 hour a week kind of job. <laughs> and I was so poor. Because you don't get paid for student teaching. I was taking out loans and I was, I had no, no working car. 
Garrett had to have the the sort of working car so that he could get to work. So I was having to bum rides to school, which was all the way across town. Um, That must have been 15 miles, 20 miles. It it felt like, I mean, it took at least 30 minutes to get there. So I was bumming rides to and from work, borrowing money for gas, (laughs) packing ramen for lunch. Like, I was so hungry and so poor and so broke and... So overworked, but it was it was worth it. When I did a long term sub job at one point, for some reason they didn't pay me for four weeks rather than the usual two after oh, I started. My. And I petitioned them. I said, "Look, I, I know it's your standard policy. Is there? I can't hurt to ask. Is there any chance I could get paid for the work I've already done? I'm not asking for an advance or anything, but I could really use some mm-hmm. money right now." And the woman said, "I'll check." And then she checked, and then she came back and said, "No, it can't be done. I guess it's another couple weeks of ramen for you." <laughs> But that was literally oh. all I was eating. Eggs in the morning and then ramen for lunch and ramen for dinner. Like, that was my whole diet. Wow. So she thought it was a cute joke and it wasn't. Ah, oh, poverty so. is funny. Right, exactly. Let's laugh at your poverty. Yay. Right. Right. When I started teaching at the school where I am now, they don't pay new teachers to the district for the first two months. So teachers start the first week of August and they don't get their pay until the 20th of September. That's insane. (laughs) So this was me moving from Nashville down to Murfreesboro, right? And I had two kids who were getting after-school care and daycare in Nashville. I was still living in Nashville. And I had rent, and Garrett was working up in Madison. Hey, Eric here. I think Shay probably meant Nashville there. I can't imagine her husband Garrett was driving from Murfreesboro to Madison, Wisconsin, and then back. So probably just a little mistake. Back to the interview. And I was working down in Murfreesboro, so our gas bills were high. It was it was insane. I mean, childcare was... I was paying more in childcare than I was paying in rent wow. in the Green Hills neighborhood, which is the fancy neighborhood or whatever in, in Nashville. And so I had to borrow money to teach it felt it felt like my student teaching years all over again <laughs> it's like hey kids guess what we're doing for two months <laughs> barely making it <laughs> yeah. yay poverty yay poverty but poverty is a constant thread throughout you know teaching sure sure <laughs> it shouldn't have to be of mm-hmm. course but but it is it is so how long between you finishing your student teaching and you getting your first sort of legit teaching job? Did that happen right away? No. Or did you have to do subbing and that sort of thing? Actually, okay, so I graduated in December of 97, mm-hmm. and there was a hiring freeze in Sarasota County, so there were no jobs. So I wound up doing some little bit of tutoring here and working at the Hampton Inn still. Mm-hmm. Like I kept that job, and I don't remember how else we made money. Um, and then we moved to Madison, Wisconsin, in August of 98. And how long did it take to find a job here? Uh, I found a job pretty quickly here. I worked at Women's Transit Authority. Right. Were you looking for teaching? Did you need to get recertified? Were there steps in that process? There were steps. For me to go from University of South Florida to teaching in Wisconsin required me to take so much additional coursework mm-hmm. um, to be fully certified mm-hmm in social studies and some of that coursework was ridiculous uh, I had to take the history of co-ops in mm-hmm. Wisconsin and wow <laughs> I mean you can see why a social studies and economics teacher might want to know a little bit more about the history of farm cooperatives and other types of cooperatives that sprung up in Wisconsin but it was still 
Some of it felt ridiculous. It was a little niche in some respects. <laughs> yeah. Very, very much so. And I don't know that those classes would have been required if I had graduated from UW. So it took a long time to get certified mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. And I don't actually know that I ever was fully certified. Mm-hmm. I think I just kept extending that out-of-state teacher's license. That took a while. And finding a job in Wisconsin as a teacher took me a long time because nobody wanted to hire somebody with an out-of-state teacher's license with a degree from out of state in Wisconsin, which has one of the best, you know, educational programs in the country. There's a lot of fresh-faced kids coming oh right out of UW Madison. Yes, and especially, especially in social studies. Right. So there were over 100 applicants for every one social studies teaching position as you got closer to Madison. So my first year teaching was in 99. And that was... Where was that? That was in Kiel. In Kiel, that's right. That was 100 miles away. Yeah, from, I went from with you at one point, I think. Too. Did you go up there? I remember riding in the car with you early one morning to a school <laughs> somewhere far away. Well, all, both the schools I taught at uh, here were very far away. But Kiel was the furthest. It was 100 miles, one way up there. I had to go through Fond du Lac. It was all back roads from there. So many cornfields. And it took me two hours. How big was the school? Do you remember? at most 400 kids. They had never seen anybody like me, and I'm not that weird, but (laughs) most of them had never been out of the county. Most of my students had never left the county. Milwaukee and Madison were big, scary cities, and they had never talked to a southerner before. So they didn't know what to make of me. (laughs) And they all wanted to talk to me about being southern. They wanted to test every stereotype. What are grits like? What are grits like? (laughs) The most common first conversation I had was about race and racism, actually, with these local people. Uh, But there was a family there that took me in in the wintertime, so I wouldn't have to drive back and forth on the roads. And, you know, Florida girl, I didn't want to have to drive 200 miles a day on, on those kinds of roads. So Wisconsin roads in the winter aren't so bad. Like, they're pretty well maintained if you stick to the main highways. If you're, when you, once you become used to them. Once you're used to them. I learned how to drive in the snow working at Women's Transit Authority, though. I, had, I definitely learned how to drive in the snow. But yeah, this great family took me in, and they had four kids, big house. Um, they were farmers, and, and then the, the husband had a part-time job working at the Land Lakes Dairy. And I got to take a tour of the dairy. That was fun. Did you get free cheese and stuff? No. Oh, man. No, I mean, they, they fed me. Yeah. Sure. But I learned a, that there, there's weird eating that happens in rural northern like Wisconsin. Like chili. Okay, the chili I grew up with, meat, beans, right? Tomato-based. And you occasionally serve it with cheese or sour cream. No, that's not how they serve it up there. They serve it over corkscrew pasta. So it's like a sauce. I have had that, yeah. It is weird. And it's sweet. Yeah. Like, they dump a lot of brown sugar in it. So I'm like, a sweet, <laughs> tangy, over pasta? Um, they used to keep a sleeve of saltine crackers and a tub of blue bonnet butter on the table. And that was their appetizer. Every, every day. They would, I would come in from work, getting ready to grade some papers, and they'd be sitting at the table, slathering blue bonnet on saltine crackers. I and... like blue bonnet, I gotta be honest. That doesn't sound too bad. I mean, I'm not crazy about saltines. Some bread, some blue bonnet, I'm happy. And then I had this German-style potato salad, and it was it was no. runny, no. and it looked like clear mucus. Oh, I don't know, it just kind of had that consistency. And again, sweet, and mm. I was like, this is just 
No, they mayo shouldn't be allowed to call it potato salad. Like, <laughs> you can eat that if you want, but you don't get to call it potato salad because you fooled too many people into like, eating nasty this things. This is just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely made me appreciate some of the cooking with which I was raised. <laughs> How much did your first teaching job there at Keel match your expectations or your hopes of what teaching was going to be like? The kids were as I expected them to be. They were kids, you know. They tried their hardest. They wanted to please. They all want to be successful. They just struggle to do so sometimes. They found me interesting because I was so different from all the other white people in town. And I don't, I don't know. I, just, I loved, I loved those kids. The parts that were really different were how they dealt with differences. You know, I was used to like Southern culture and Southern model of dealing with racial differences and class differences and stuff like this. And we tend to talk more openly about those in the South, but it seemed that the culture that I was running into there is that it was impolite. So they never talked about those differences and how strength can come from that. And they found differences scary. And those ideas that they would hold about what people who are different from them are like were unchallenged because they were never discussed. And so there were a lot of people who thought of themselves as good people, not racist people, who held some really racist ideas. Can you give an example? Yes. <laughs> yes, I can. Please go right ahead. <laughs> there was this one young woman who felt really different from her peers. And, you know, today I think she would have easily identified as lesbian or at the very least bi but she i don't think she knew those words those ideas and i'm sorry you said this was 98 99 99 and and she was young she was 14 or 15 but she really liked me i mean she really liked me and she was constantly coming into my classroom and hanging out in my room after school and wanting to talk to me and tell me about her life and she would go home and talk about me and so her dad really wanted to meet me so he was popped by the school one day to, to chat and just see who this, you know, stranger to the town was. And he wanted to, of course, talk about race and racism and being Southern. And so he brings this up, I guess, to see if like what he'd heard about Southerners all being racist was true. And he talked about it by bringing up the fact that he had a neighbor who um, was really racist, <laughs> right? And how he had another neighbor who was not racist because every summer she would bring, and this is me trying to do my best to quote him, um, she would bring in a, a poor black child from Mississippi so that they could see another way of life, right? <laughs> like Angelina Jolie <laughs> style. And I'm like, ah, oh, because your way of life here is so... <laughs> so morally superior to life in Mississippi. So he's talking about how, you know, kind this woman was for taking in these poor black Mississippi children to teach them a better way or whatever. And I was, and at first I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm just nodding, going, oh, that's very interesting. And then he starts talking about how his neighbor on the other side was so racist because this, at one point, one of these black children wandered into her yard and she came out and was like, get off my lawn, you N-word, and, and how awful that was. And then he says to me, but you know what? There is a big difference between a black Mississippian and a Milwaukee N-word. And I, my, and 
<laughs> wow. Like, there, there was just so much to unpack from that conversation. And, but this was his way of telling me that he was not racist, right? That he was the liberal one in town. And I was like, oh, I know where I am now. <laughs> Welcome to our community. Welcome. I feel embraced. Wow. <laughs> there was so much to unpack That's from quite that a conversation. Story. Thank you. Yeah, sure. And you were at Keel for how long? One year. And did you leave by choice or was there sort of first, last hired, first fired type of thing? Uh, they reduced my position there to 0.7 or 0.8 FTE. and Full-time employment, for those who don't know, this is 80% time if you're 0.8. Right. So I could afford to, to do the commute and to pay rent to the family in Kiel on a 100%. But when they cut it back... Time to find something Time else. to find something new. Sure. So I applied to, again every city in the entire state that was looking for social studies and found one at Hartford. How far is Hartford from 60 miles uh, toward Milwaukee. It's about 35 miles northwest of Milwaukee. So the drive was a little easier and uh, a little faster. So I'd only have to leave like an hour and a half before I had to be there. But you have to be there at 7.30 or 8? Yeah, it was something ridiculous. So that means you're on the road by 6 a.m.? I think I was routinely on the road by 5 or 5.30 in those days. Which meant you get up, you got up at 4 a.m.? I guess. 4.30, maybe. Maybe 5. I don't know. I I would do crazy things like put makeup on in the car. It was just more or less shower, dress, get in the car, start driving, <laughs> then wake up. <laughs> I had to recently explain to my friends in the U.K. about eating a bagel on the way to school. Right. And they were just, wait, 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 wait. Why don't you just eat at your breakfast table before you leave in the morning? And I just said... <laughs> What a cute idea. That's adorable. I know, right? This what is was this a leisurely breakfast right. thing? It wasn't summertime. <laughs> Let me explain. This was in the fall. I, it was hard for them to understand. And so you were at Hartford for how long? Three years. Three years. And what was the biggest change between Keele and Hartford for you? I loved teaching at Hartford. Um, Hartford was more forward-minded in terms of educational practice, in terms of risk-taking, in terms of... Uh, collegiality and and professional respect. They were really innovative and trying new things. And we worked as a team. So we were trying things like co-teaching and collaborative planning and combining academic content. So I taught for three years a class that was called Global Communications. It was a combination of social studies and literature. So I would do like the geography and culture of various areas around the world, and I co-taught with an English teacher who would teach the literature of the region. I, I love cross, cross-curriculum. It allows for a lot of innovation and a lot of... Content shouldn't be as compartmentalized as it is in the high school. There's so much bleed in between content in real life that learning about one enhances your, your understanding of another. So I worked with teachers that really seemed to respect creativity and innovation and professionalism and worked hard at it. We got along really well. Instead of doing our planning in our classrooms, the classrooms were for the kids and we had an office space that was shared. So it led to a lot of really spontaneous sharing and brainstorming and this constant feeding off of one another. And we became really good friends. And so that that also helped. And so in those early years, did you feel certain parts of your teacher self getting stronger? Like, what do you think was your earliest realization of, hey, I'm learning how to do this right. Like, I think I'm getting the hang of this. Mm -hmm. Or did you feel like that from the jump? 
egotistically, I think I felt like a much better teacher than I was. Because <laughs> I, I look back on some of the stuff that I did my first five years of teaching, and I was like, ooh, cringe. Like I would what? never do that now. Like what? Uh, you know, PowerPoint lectures. <laughs> Just... <laughs> but we were also doing some really cool stuff like group work and we did extensive rubrics and allowing students to do portfolio assessments as opposed to tests. There was a lot more of that at Hartford mm -hmm. than there had ever been at Keele. Keele was really traditional in terms of its structure and how it presented content to students and what those students were expected to do to show their learning. In, in Hartford, it was really innovative. But the thing that helped me understand what good teaching looked like was being able to work on a team and being able to go and observe other teachers. We had a program that was spearheaded by a teacher I had great respect for. His name was Dan, Dan Roscom. He was an English teacher. He started a program of collegial coaching where you could invite a veteran mentor teacher into your classroom and ask them to watch you teach to work on specific aspects of your instructional approach. So it could be classroom management or content or portfolio development or, you know, just whatever. And they would come in, they would observe you, they would give you your notes and discuss with you what you did, and you just used it to improve. None of it went to administration. It wasn't used for any evaluation purposes. It was simply used for self-improvement. And that's really the thing that I found the most innovative at Hartford, was that there was immense respect for diversity in education. There was no one way to do it right. And if they're going to take money and time and, well, really the taxpayer dollars to invest in, an, in a teacher, to help them be a good teacher. They took that seriously. It's like, okay, so you're not really good in this one area. Today, I think like we fire those teachers. We gotta get rid of the bad teachers. But there was an understanding there that somebody who didn't do one thing really well could improve. It's learned skill. I mean, a teacher, imagine teachers believing that people can learn and change. <laughs> And then, and then helping teachers improve and grow and change. Well, I'm sorry to waste your time, <laughs> listeners. Apparently, we have a crazy person on the show here. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not how anything works. Being able to work in an environment where I was, you know, in my second year of teaching, second through, you know, fifth year of teaching, and being able to work in a collaborative teaching community where it was okay to take risk and to fail and then to go back and improve and but not throw the whole thing away right where you were working collaboratively and so all these teachers were trying similar lessons and talking about what worked and what didn't that was transformative in terms of taking me from and what you know was pretty average teaching maybe even below average because I was a new teacher to it was just so juicy. It was so uh, fulfilling to be able to work there. It reminds so. me of uh, something we used to do in our department, which was this reading indicator. And it's very straightforward in terms of the process. We'd give the kids a story, have them read it, answer some questions. And there was one story at the beginning of the year, one story halfway through the year. And, or I guess one story halfway through and then one at the end of the year. And then we'd get together as a department. Every teacher had the day off and we'd meet at the district office and we'd go through every single assignment that every student took and grade them blindly so that I give it a score, you give it a score, we compare what we gave it mm -hmm. and then talk about why we would give it a little higher, a little lower, find a, an agreement. And it was such a good way to remind ourselves of what was working, what we needed to work on, why students were all answering this one thing in this way and what we're missing in terms of our instruction yes. or what we could try differently. And the, eventually the district said, well, there's no more money for the subs for that whole thing. So we're just 
calling off. And ever since then, I haven't, all the teachers I've worked with from back then, we always say that was so valuable. It was so yes. useful. And all this constant professional development that they're throwing at us and all these experts they bring in, none of it has ever been as useful as that simple mm-hmm. process of, yeah, you know, we, we come together and we sort through this stuff. Not because of data, not just because we want to help certain cohorts or whatever, but because we need that time to work together as a community of educators. Yes. And I think a lot of people really misunderstand the value of that sort of thing. So I want to return to something you said about cringing at the idea of a PowerPoint lecture and the value of small group work, for instance. Let's just assume I'm a random parent or, you know, student. Okay, what's the big deal with lectures? You're the authority. You know what you're talking about. Why not lecture? Uh, Small group work. Oh, dude. Uh, Whenever I did small group work when I was in high school, the smart kids did all the work and the lazy kids slacked off and and nobody learned anything. So what do you say to all that? They had a completely valid perspective. There is something to be said for presenting content uh, without any feedback from the students, saying these are the expectations, these are the things you need to know, you will be tested on this material, go learn it. But my job as a teacher in the classroom is to be a partner to the kids, and not just to teach them content, but to help make that content accessible to them. I think of myself more like a doctor with a prescription pad. Um, I am there to prescribe not just what they need to learn, but different ways of them to access it. So instructional methods in the classroom are sort of like um, different treatments, different medications that a doctor might use to treat an illness. Um, And so I prescribe different ways for my very different students to access the same material. Sometimes it's through group work, sometimes it's through reading, sometimes occasionally I do go back to a PowerPoint lecture. It really depends upon the content and how complicated it is. And that's why small classes are so important to me. Oh my goodness. Because if you're going to, I mean, imagine a doctor having to diagnose a room of 25 people. Right. All the same way. All the same way. You all have this disease. (laughs) Or even just, you know, you can meet with them once a month individually. Oh, but right right so for those who don't realize the you know a lot of times especially because there's so much research that bill gates and his friends will put out that say well this research says that class size doesn't matter and it's hard to get research that says class size matters i saw one person say okay look everyone knows class size matters but it's the question of what's the most cost effective use of money and often class size isn't it but I think those of us who, who've been teaching for a while understand that even if it doesn't always turn into data for research, class size has everything to do with how well we can meet the needs of individual students. Absolutely. There is a huge difference between teaching a class of 35, which I have, and teaching a class of 17, which I've also done. I had two classes of eight last year. I, oh, my I was goodness. so lucky. It was insane. I can't imagine. Yeah. I had a class of 35 economics students in standard economics, and it was followed by a class of 17. And the difference between those two classes... It was the same class. Yeah, both standard economics. In terms of instructional material and design and pace and content presentation, it was similar. 
But in terms of getting to know those students, being able to work with them one-on-one, being able to encourage them to, to keep trying even when it was hard, um, just being able to be that cheerleader and be that motivator for them, being able to answer, to make my way around the classroom to answer those questions when they were struggling, to be able to see when they were struggling. Um, it was so much easier and it was, oh, in the class of 17, it was so much easier. The class of 35, I, in a, in a 50 minute class, I couldn't get to, to every student. I literally couldn't get to every student. So in that, in those cases, I had to rely much more on peer help, talk to your partner, um, have them check your understanding, having to rely on multiple choice tests to assess as opposed to why don't you just tell me what you think? Give me your reasoning, give me your logic behind that. I could do that much more frequently with the class of 17. And so in those smaller classes, my students were more frequently successful and more motivated because they couldn't hide. They were able to interact with me more. I asked them more questions and, or they were asked questions more frequently because there were fewer of them. And so they gained, a, I think, a more thorough and, and deeper understanding of the content. So you taught for three years in Hartford, you said? I did. And then, was that when y'all went back to Florida after yes. that? And you were in Pensacola? I was. And you taught there? I did. How long? Uh, we were there from 03 to 07. And were you at the same school the whole time? No. Okay. I taught for a year at Tate High School, uh, which is a large public school in Pensacola, uh, more rural. And then I taught for two years at a private school, um, pre-K through eighth grade, college prep school, basically. What was that like? Why was it different from a public school? Well, um, it was different in, in that it was much smaller. I taught sixth, seventh, and eighth grade there, and each class was less than 20. Every time? Every time. I had the same kids for each year. So I was the only social studies teacher, as opposed to doing work in a team and being collaborative and having department meetings. I was my own department. Was that your first time teaching middle school? Yes. Was that a big difference? Yes. How so? Their understanding of the world is much more black and white, much more concrete. Their parents are more involved and their parents tend to, at least for those kids, they're tend to they're tended to be more infantilizing almost of their children. I, I felt like their kids could do more, at least intellectually, academically, than the parents were ready for. How much of that do you think was the age and how much do you think was the private school part of it? I don't know that I could tease those two apart. Both factors, I'm sure. Both factors. The intention of that school was that every child there would go into the IB program in high school. And so my job was to do IB prep. In fact, we were in the process of becoming an IB middle school and talking to the, the high school social studies teachers in the IB program, knowing what they would be facing their freshman year, my job was to make sure they were ready. And so we did extensive units on how to read, um, how to do notes, how to take notes, how to do abbreviations, et cetera, et cetera. So quickly writing notes, quickly taking notes, quickly reading for understanding. And it was so hard. That started them in sixth grade for that. And the sixth grade parents were just, they're like, this is too much 
the parents said the parents said that because the kids complained because it does it does take time to take four pages you know read four pages and take extensive you know roman numeral style outline notes and then i would have them go back and write questions based on the notes that they took so they would write an essay question for each major roman numeral and then multiple choice questions or true false questions based upon the more minor details it's just me trying to help them understand the connection between what they were reading, what they were hearing, and how they might be assessed. And so that was it was time consuming for them. By the time they were in 8th grade, they were much much better at it. But I got a lot of pushback that first year there from some of the 6th and 7th grade parents. Was that sorry, was that the first time that school had implemented that? Yes. Rigor. So yeah. it was new to them as 6th grade students, but it was also new to the school in terms of what the community was expecting. Yes. That kids would be getting into. Yes. But for those who don't know, International Baccalaureate, it's no joke. That's a hardcore it program really in the high school. Mm-hmm. So getting kids to a point where they're really ready for it, where they're mm-hmm. going to succeed at it, mm-hmm. is going to be intensive. Mm-hmm. All of my friends from middle school went to Eastside High School in Gainesville, which had an International Baccalaureate program. Mm-hmm. And I decided at that point in my life, I'm not trying, because I had heard stories about they had no free time. They had no chance to explore hobbies and, you know, play video games and goof off. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they got accepted into Yale and Harvard, Mm -hmm. and they had great success. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of my earliest experiences with the trade-off, with pursuing what I've come to understand as the split between money and truth. You want points, you want grades, you want money. It eventually turns into actual cash. Mm -hmm. But you also have the need to understand truth. And I think young people, of course, have a need to not be cogs in a machine. Mm -hmm. And we educators have a question about how much we're going to work on getting them ready for the money. Mm -hmm. But having them become citizens in a democracy, members of a world community. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the International Baccalaureate obviously is a great opportunity, especially for kids who have come from difficult or disadvantaged backgrounds Mm -hmm. to access halls of privilege and power. But on the other hand, it's it's this all-consuming curriculum of train, 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 mm-hmm. and, and how much is given up in the process. Did, did you experience that? I mean, was that part of your... Uh, the train, 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 train part was definitely part of my experience. The kids were not expected to do anything but their, their homework because this was their job, and they had to go and be academically successful. So no sports, no clubs, no music... No, they did that kind of enrichment. I mean, if it was going to enhance their intellectual life, then they they participated. Anything to make that college resume or that college application look good. But no garage bands, no No. hanging out with friends playing stickball. No, none of that kind of unstructured free time right. that was not- no staring at the clouds <laughs> through the window yeah no. right. i mean th- these these were definitely kids who had every moment structured right. but i had those those same parents come back to me and tell me how much they appreciated what i had taught their students as i taught the first year i was there i taught sixth seventh and eighth graders how to do these the style of note taking and how to connect what they were reading and the types of lectures they would hear to the types of tests that they would get um, in order to help them focus what to study so that they could so they wouldn't have to spend so much time studying really uh, i was trying to, to help them do it right the first time <laughs> right this is how you study fast and uh, you know work smarter not harder if you're going to go and you know try to do academic everything then this is how you do it and those students that went from eighth grade to to the ib program the next year 
with what I had taught them. Those were the students and the parents that came back and told the sixth and seventh grade parents to shut up. <laughs> that I actually knew what I was doing and that they appreciated it and that those those students found the work to be easy and accessible because they were prepared. And so part of me as a teacher was, I felt bad for doing it to them because it, it, it did create so much stress and they were kids, right? But at the same time, if they were going to have to go and do this thing, then this is how you prepare. There's a part of that dilemma, I think, that's at the heart of all teaching at a compulsory institution oh, yeah. like the ones we teach in. You know, there's the story of the Zen teacher who has a student who will not detach from the material realm, and he cuts the dude's finger off. It's the question of how far do you go mm -hmm. to push a kid mm -hmm. who may be resisting for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. You know, V for Vendetta is another good example, right? Mm -hmm. Like, V goes to some extreme lengths yes. to help Evie get free the way she wants to be, yes. the way she needs to be. But there's obviously ethical gray area there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you think about time, if you have any times when you can think of, you know, sort of pushing a kid who's resisting hard or, or when you've, I mean, obviously that example you just mentioned is a time when you had to kind of do some stuff that you felt a little unsure of, but then obviously it paid off in the long run. It paid off for those kids academically. In fact, I, I ran into a couple of those students when they were in college. Uh, when I was back home visiting, I ran into one in a doctor's office and he was at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And he Go was, Gators! I know. <laughs> and he was studying pre-med um, along with a couple other students that I had taught. And he, he was there with his parents. His parents came up to me, remembered me, gave me huge hugs. And he started, and that student started talking to me about how, how he appreciated what I had taught him, how he was still using those techniques in college, in his pre-med classes, and still finding success in using them, which was, which was really validating because uh, you know, the kid was smart. And, I, and he was one of the kids that I had taught in sixth grade and seventh grade, and his parents were, were some of the, the detractors in that sixth grade year. But when all three of them came back up to me and was like, no, you did a, you did a great job, you did right by these kids, it, it made me feel good. But there's still that part of me that that questions it because but the parents assume a particular track to success right and in a private school setting parents have a lot of control over what happens in the classroom you know if the parents don't like you you lose your job there's very little buffer between between you and and the parents especially if you don't have a strong you know head of school or principal now fortunately i did have one who definitely had my back at that school but the parents prescribed this one very narrow path to success and asked me to partner with them in that in order to make this ideal successful child i was saddened to hear that some of the other students that i had taught wound up doing typical rebellious things that wound up hurting them. Getting really involved in, in drugs, dropping out, overdosing, one of them was dead. And I think that that is in large part a symptom and a result of this push to narrowly define what success looks like for these kids, where we don't make room for a kid to not pursue academic rigor, a kid to pursue something else. We don't allow students and families and people to define success beyond, you know, college, grad school, lawyer, doctor, you know, whatever. And so these kids internalize failure and they internalize that disappointment and they learn to not love themselves. 
and I feel like I participated in that too. Um, so there's a lot of guilt, but there's a lot of success. I helped some kids be successful in what they wanted to do. I also uh, helped hurt them. So in a, in, a, in a philosophical sense, when we look at our ideal schools, you, when you look at your ideal school, on the one hand, we've got John Dewey, Maria Montessori, progressive education, new college to an extent, right? Here's a room, here's tools, we are a resource, do what you want to do. Like let's let the innate learning drive of these young people be the guide. And then on the other hand, you've got, I guess, international baccalaureate would be as good an example mm-hmm. as any of you. We are preparing you for this high stakes world of pressure mm-hmm. because we want you to succeed in this certain way. Mm-hmm. Where do you put yourself in terms of what you think is best for students? I would like to think that I align myself with with the students um, in advocating for what is best for them in in terms of their development as full human beings, not just in terms of <laughs> their content knowledge in my particular subject area. When I moved to Tennessee and started teaching there, I taught U.S. history. And in Tennessee, they have a lot of high-stakes tests. And in U.S. history, that test is... Well, they're, they're, they do high-stakes testing in U.S. history. And it's this very, very narrow definition of what success looks like. It's 50 questions. It's multiple choice. There is only one way to show success. And in order to be a successful teacher, I was supposed to help my students pass that test. And in order to help my students be successful on that test, I had to teach them in a very different way than what I felt was best for them. And after a number of years of teaching there in that environment with that kind of a mindset, I felt like I was harming them. I was helping my students to learn to hate history, which hurt me because I love history. Um, And I mean, it's the story of us, but they weren't learning the story of us. They were learning facts and names and dates. They weren't learning flow. They weren't learning theme. They weren't learning what binds us and what divides us and how to how to work through those differences. There are so many amazing and inspirational and beautiful stories in history. And there are also some really tragic ones that we need to learn. And I had to skip the deep history in order to give them the the breadth without the depth. And breadth without depth, it's it's empty. It's completely empty. And so the kids are like, why do I need to learn these facts? How, How do these facts make a difference in my life? They don't. They don't until you learn the depth, until you learn the context. Um, How to apply it to your life. Yeah, absolutely. And the only way to apply somebody else's story to your life is to, one, learn the story, which means you have to, con- and, and, and to connect to it. But the only way you do that is to take the time to tell the story. And there was never time to tell the story. It was so time-driven. I mean, I had to teach World War II in a week. You know, how do you teach World War II plus... Nazis, Holocaust. bad, Americans, good? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's, you don't need a week, you don't need two days. World War II in a week, from the buildup of fascism in Europe to the U.S. response to the actual wars and battles uh, to the Holocaust to the rebuilding of Europe afterward, and that's just the European theater. Right. That's not <laughs> that's Japan, that's Russia. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's an impossible task. And in teaching it in a week, there's so many stories lost that would make people love that history and, and learn to appreciate their grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. And 
um, I feel like in stripping the history, we were stripping the humanity from the story, leaving it empty and us disconnected from it. And it allows, it allows for a lot of sloppy thinking today in terms of how we, we use people in history as sort of like vanguards, as flags we wave, as, as a call to a particular ideology. And these were people who were complicated, but we oversimplify them and make them make them empty symbols sure. of whatever we want to use them for. I heard, I heard someone describe it as the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. Oh my instance. God. Yes. Right. These are, these are complicated people. Um, and there are complicated stories and complicated interactions and uh, the nuance we've lost the nuance. Sure. So historical thinking is where I like to focus teaching those kinds of skills in terms of how to read, how to interpret, how to find context, how to build the story of history, and how to critique the story of history. So I, I now teach African American history, and I enjoy it so much more because I'm allowed, because it's not a tested class, I'm allowed to take my time, I'm allowed to help the kids go into depth. I can take one primary source document, right, written 400 years ago, and help the kids understand that difficult English and break down the vocabulary and help them analyze it and then help them put it into context and help them find evidence to to support their own hypothesis what this what this document means but you want to take a group of kids that don't like to, to read or haven't ever read anything from that time period and get them through that process that is time consuming which means that you can't cover the breadth but you can teach them how to be historical thinkers and as a white teacher teaching African-American history to many students of color, I don't feel like it's my place to tell them what the history is. My, my job is to help them discover history and to learn it themselves and to connect to it themselves. So I'm there to offer stories that are different than their assumptions about what the history is. And it's, and it's so much more complex than what they, what they come in thinking about. So did you, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. When you moved from Florida to Tennessee, mm -hmm. did you teach in Nashville? I did. And how long was that? I taught at White's Creek High School for one year. Mm -hmm. And then after that it was to Murfreesboro? Yes. Okay. And you've been there ever since? Yes. At the same high school, River, same high school. Side, Riverdale? Riverdale. Riverdale. And when you work with students like Archie and Jughead, do you <laughs> have to deal with that joke a lot? No. Really? <laughs> Very few people... I actually wind up making the joke. Because yeah. there's a new show, you know. There's a lot of kids who are really into the show. I know. And when I talk to them, I'm like, have you all ever read the comics? I'm like, what comics? There's seven billion comics. <laughs> oh, my God. But it's, I understand it's taking some liberties. And, so how did you come to teach that class? Did you say, I want to teach that? Or yes. was it sort of handed to you? No, I fought for it. Was um, that a hard fight? It took a couple of years to get the class. It was in the county's course description booklet but it wasn't offered at my so school. So it, it didn't exist at your school? No it did not exist at my school. You had to fight to make it happen at your school? Correct and the way that that happens is teachers have to put in basically an application. They, they write saying I want to teach this class here's why we should teach it etc and then they have to drum up support for it they have to get kids to sign up for it. Even though it's already been approved mm -hmm. by the district? Yes it, it was offered at a different high school just one other high school in the county. Gotcha just one. So it was it difficult for you to draw up that support? It was, actually. Uh, I had to get permission from the administration first. And they were reluctant? They were, in fact, reluctant. Why? It took, 
That I I couldn't say. You can fill in the blanks as well as I can. <laughs> well, of course, and and this is one of those things about life and politics where we don't know obviously mm-hmm. what people are thinking. We wish we knew. Mm-hmm. We have some likely candidates. Sure, racism. <clears throat> but oh my, it's interesting because I think that even when there's total support from administrators. Mm -hmm. It can still be an uphill battle for expanding curriculum or whatever. Mm -hmm. But eventually it worked. You got it approved. I did. It took about three years, I think. uh You've been teaching it for how long? Five years. Five years now. What's your favorite part of teaching that class? Like, is there a text you love most or a unit in the class that you really enjoy? Mm. I love talking to the kids about a couple... There are a couple of different things that I... In terms of content that I enjoy talking about... Most of the students who come in know a very narrow, they have a very narrow understanding of what slavery was in the United States. And it's actually way bigger and more complex. And there are, there's not just this one experience of cotton fields and there were so many different ways to be enslaved and so many different experiences. And I feel like uh, this common, you know, stereotyped perception or cultural memory, I guess, of, of this one experience, it erases these others. And I feel like there are a number of voices for us to, to hear. So one of the, one of my favorite pieces is a petition from an African, an African man who, who joined the conquistadors and <laughs> marched with Cortez. And, um, and in this petition, he's petitioning for a pension because he served, he served, and he, you know, retired from the military, and now he's like, okay, so even though I was enslaved and I was, you know, part of the military in that way, look at all the stuff I did. He talks about in his petition planting corn, and really um, it being innovative in that way. And so, here we have like one of the very first Africans in America it, as a slave, but he's you know given weapons and he becomes a leader and he. He's talking about all of his achievements, and he gets his pension from the, from the Spanish royalty. So, I don't know. That's it's kind of an interesting story, right? Um, and there are so many like that. Um, there's also the question of how did people become enslaved, and so there are so many stories about how that happened. And so I love helping the students to read people's own words like I don't tell them this is what happened what I do is I present them with a packet of primary source documents and I break them into groups and they have to read and they have you know they have these foldables that they do where they do a comparison compare and contrast these are stories from people in their own words and these are stories that were passed down from parent to child parent to child over generations and do you find similarities do you find differences are there themes in in these stories things that keep coming up and um there are so many stories of kidnapping or being tricked onto boats. Um, 12 years of slave. Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so I find that part interesting. And, they, and this, that's their first real introduction into what it's like to draw a conclusion from primary source documents. Okay, so, like, now that we've read these 10 different accounts of how people became a slave, how would you, how would you write a paragraph? in a history book for a student to read. Like if you were trying to present this to a fifth grader, what would you say? And could you could you provide evidence for it? Um, another one that I really like doing is uh, the Children's March in Selma. Because that is one of the first times that these kids 
come across this idea that they have power and that they can create change and that they can inspire adults to take action when adults become passive. It's a really empowering connection for them to make because a lot of them feel like they can't do anything to fix the problems that they see in the world. So many of them. I think that's very important. I'm glad you mentioned it. And I think that the stories of resistance are so important oh, yeah. for young people to hear because they have everything to do with the concept of hope. Yes. And I, I remember when I learned about, I assume you cover Nat Turner, Harry sure. Tubman, you know, mm-hmm. when I learned about Treblinka, the Nazi death camp where the prisoners rose up, killed the guards and burned the camp to the ground. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, why did I never learn about this in right? school? Because all we learned was, we didn't even learn about the, the Warsaw Uprising which, you know, in and of itself is an example of resistance, right? And maybe that was my particular teachers, or maybe I wasn't paying attention, who knows? But I do think that it's a it's a disgrace, it's a shame, it's a it's a it's a a moral outrage to teach kids only about the horrors, important though they are, Mm -hmm. of those episodes. Mm -hmm. But to not even spend a minute talking about those people who did not go down without a fight. And those those people who resisted, sometimes unsuccessfully, sometimes successfully, Mm -hmm. against the most horrible odds. And that's why I always take a, a, a day every semester in every class I teach to tell them the story of East Timor. Because it taught me so much about my power as a person living in an imperial society. Mm-hmm. And my power as a person who can write a letter. That just has a power to it. And I think that that helped save me from a kind of existential dread that I lived in for a while. And I think that a lot of students wrestle with forms of that you know maybe it's not the same type maybe it's not political in the way mine was but nevertheless forms of power as you say with those kids in Selma are important for young people to know about yes because that can save us from the notion that well the forces of history are so big and they have nothing to do with individual you know ordinary people like me Mm. right A, a lot of the students really really enjoy learning about the civil rights era I enjoy teaching about resistance during the Jim Crow era. I love teaching about Marcus Garvey. I love teaching them this idea that, you know, Marcus Garvey was one of the first people to talk about black as beautiful and the sense of like empowering the individual to see themselves differently than how society sees them, giving permission for that. Unia is never talked about in history books, like never, but it had over a million members. And that was something that he he started, this personal empowerment, community empowerment idea that has woven itself through African-American history since, you know, the 1920s. So I, I love teaching about, about that. I love teaching about resistance and different ways to resist. And so, like, in the, in the larger unit that we do on slavery, we cover, like, how people became enslaved and what they experienced while they were, you know, enslaved. But then we talk about resistance to slavery. And so we look at a lot of documents that are about passive resistance, ways that, you know, people broke tools or did, worked slowly or poisoned people or burned down barns or, you know, just ways to avoid work and ways they avoided dehumanization. And then we talk about, you know, more organized resistance. So um, running away, the Underground Railroad, and then we talk about um, active and violent resistance. And so we talk about Nat Turner and the Black Seminole Rebellion. And, um, you know, so actually we do a whole unit on, on those as well. And then they compare and contrast. And then they have to do an assessment of which method they found to be the most effective. Okay. So 
and, and, and they, they get to set up their own criteria. So sometimes they include, did people become free because of this? Or how many people died? Or how many people were involved? Or, you know, whatever. But they set their own criteria for how to measure what success looks like. And then they go back and they measure in small groups. And then they write their own personal essay on which method they use. And then we go back and we look at that. Um, those exact same essays and that exact same rubric and that exact same criteria they set when we do the civil rights movement. And we talk about passive nonviolent resistance versus <laughs> violent resistance and which one is successful you know, later. And so we talk about that in terms of themes of creating resistance and change within culture. If you're going to align yourself with a group or a movement in order to create a change in the world, how are you going to do it? So first it's helping them understand that they have a voice and that they have power and then they also have power together and that they can actually make the world they want to see and then they have tools and historical knowledge in order to help them understand what which path they want to choose based on their own assessment so it's me not telling them what the history is it's the it's me partnering with them discovering what that history is and then me helping them figure out how to use it to shape themselves i don't know learning the lessons of history so we're not condemned to repeat them i love teaching that class so much there's a lot of other things i would love to talk about with that but i do want to cover some other things too and we're getting to the one hour mark did you teach economics before the 2008 crash yes how did that incident change the way you taught economics since 2008, I've spent more time helping students understand macroeconomic indicators, really much more so since 2016. But there were a lot of questions that came up in terms of what caused this? How do we fix it? Is this going to happen again? The kids ten year, that I was teaching 10 years ago in, in the heart of that crash versus the kids I teach today are really different. The kids I'm teaching now don't really remember the crash anymore. Like they probably remember their parents being a little stressed when they were in elementary school, but they don't, they don't remember it in any real tangible way. The kids that I was teaching in like 2010, when the unemployment rate was at its height and the number of homeless students I was teaching doubled. I mean, we had in a school of 2000, we had easily 200 homeless students. In a class of 30 kids, if I said, and this is, you know, seniors, so 18 year olds, if I said, how many of you have a job? I would have maybe two kids raise their hands. Today, it's maybe two kids who don't raise their hands. Right. So there was so much poverty then, and kids were feeling really, really insecure. And so they wanted to understand what happened. How did it get so bad? And could this happen again? And so I, I started to develop units to answer those questions. And the unit I developed is on economic indicators. I worked really hard to create a foldable that they could use and take with them after they graduated. Like the whole thing is just a, a booklet that they put together called economic indicators. And so we have leading coincident lagging indicators and what the heck an indicator is. And then they have a list of different types of indicators and which category they fall into. Then there are many foldables that go like tiny ones that go inside the booklet. So they have one on the business cycle and what it means and what to look for to figure out where you are in the business cycle. There's what what the heck is GDP? <laughs> what does it mean and how can we use it? There's one on aggregate demand and supply. And then there's stuff on the unemployment rate and inflation and this, did I say CPI already? Consumer price index. So they have these pages 
that have little tiny foldables to pull out and sort of help them understand and provide context. And then there's a page of, this is where you go to find this information and here's how you interpret the data. And then I have them actually look up the data for the most recent month and then they have to write a letter to the president advising the president on what kind of economic actions uh, the, the government should take in order to correct for problems that they see in the economy. Well, there are none right now. So the letter would just be, I assume, you're doing a great job, keep up the good work, treat yourself to a cheeseburger in bed. Yeah. Whatever you do, just keep spending, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just keep spending. Growth. Growth. Uh, you know, but that, that kind of raises an interesting question because for a lot of economists, growth is the only metric that is important. And we can sacrifice all matter of social spending and, you know, even unemployment is less important than the key of growth. Mm. And as an economics professor, I wonder if you can talk about how growth fits into the puzzle. Well, economic growth, it is important in terms of making the GDP bigger, in terms of providing jobs, in terms of helping our nation, I don't know, alleviate the national debt. Like these things are important. But the problem comes in how we measure growth. And we typically measure it with GDP, gross domestic product. The problem with that is that it touts itself as being neutral. But in, in, in that traditional way of assessing growth, there's no, there's no bad spending. There's no bad product. But in, and that's how people wind up saying stupid things like, well, World War II was great for the economy <laughs> when it was terrible. Every time there's a car crash, <laughs> Every GDP time car, goes up. Right, exactly. So GDP does not include measurements of destruction of infrastructure and capital and human beings and their capital. <laughs> um, when those things are destroyed, you know, GDP should be reduced, but no, there's no bad spending, and it's, some people consider it, you know, more neutral in terms of morality. I I do not consider that to be neutral when we don't count human human lives and their loss or the destruction of a society or a city or whatever as being <laughs> good. <laughs> that is not a good. Well, and that that dovetails with a question about educational philosophy to begin with. You know how much I think all teaching is political to an extent. And Howard Zinn said you can't be neutral on a moving train. And I think that the, the effort to depoliticize mm-hmm. discussions of economics, of literature, you know, mm-hmm. the, the world that I live in, has everything to do with maintaining a status quo that causes a lot of suffering for people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's not possible to leave one's politics out of the classroom. And if it were, it wouldn't be good because it's necessary for us to challenge those assumptions mm-hmm. and the structures that exist in the world Mm -hmm. that are not healthy because there's lots of different kinds of structures and the intelligent adult knows how to differentiate between challenging structures that aren't healthy and maintaining those that are healthy Mm -hmm. okay so talking now about union stuff you've taught in eight nine ten schools a bunch (laughs) of different schools like a hundred over the years (laughs) what percentage of those would you say you were a union member in all of them. You were a union. Oh, even, except except the private school. I was going to ask about that. Okay. I was not union. And when did you get involved in something beyond just being a dues-paying member? When I was at Riverdale High School. Why did you start getting involved <laughs> in that? Because of the impact of TVOS, uh, um, standardized testing on my personal evaluation. I have always had really high evaluations. I've always you know, considered myself to be a good teacher or one that's always willing to improve and take criticism and do better. Um, 
I usually get really good positive feedback, but the impact of this U.S. history standardized test, it made me look like I was an awful teacher this one year, and uh, I, I couldn't stand it. So I got active because I wanted to change the system. So I felt like the system was not just, I mean, I already talked about teaching U.S. history and how I felt like I was being forced to participate in something that was harming students and making them hate history, hate art history. And I didn't like that. But then the last year that I taught U.S. history, I was teaching a class of 22 kids. It was an inclusion class. And the number of students that I had that were tested at the end of the year and had those tests count toward my evaluation was seven. Because kids and IEPs don't count. Um, kids who've been absent for more than 50 days don't count, et cetera, et cetera. So I had seven students mm -hmm. whose results counted toward my evaluation. Unfortunately, you need a minimum of eight in order to to create a data pool that is considered, I don't know, what's the word? Representative. Representative, sure. Uh, representative of my efficacy as a teacher. And they didn't have that. And so I wound up having to take the school score that year, which was a one, which is the lowest possible score a teacher can get. And I felt like my teaching was definitely not at a level one, but... I wound up having to take that school-wide score as a one at a one for an, a teacher evaluated by a standardized test. So it wound up being a significant chunk of my overall score. And Tennessee law said that any teacher who is teaching a tested subject that gets a one has to go on a plan of improvement where they have to for the next year be watched really closely by administration and have to develop a portfolio and do all this kind of personal assessment. But the one was not my one, like I didn't earn a one. My students' scores, the ones I would have counted, would have been fine. But it just, it made me so angry that I had to do so much additional work for a score that wasn't mine. And quite frankly, doesn't reflect what my students learned anyway. <laughs> you know, I mean, I questioned the validity of the test to begin with, much less its result. So I was like, yeah, the system has got to change and I need to start using my voice. So my teacher voice, I mean, the union is where teachers go to express themselves, to band with other teachers, to make their voice heard, make it louder, to get people to actually listen. So I became an active member and was a building rep first, which means that I would attend countywide union meetings and then go back and report to the members of my building. And then I ran for treasurer and I was treasurer for two years and then I became president elect and then president. So I just finished the 30th of this month is my last day as president of my union. <laughs> Congratulations. Yay. You made it. I made it. And now you're on your way to the National Education Association, RA, Representative Assembly yes. in Minneapolis. Yes. And do you think you've had an impact on that thing that initially got you involved in the union? I think that my participation and advocacy with my fellow teachers has definitely had an impact because over the years, in 2011, that new evaluation system was put into place. And over the years, the politicians that put that into place have slowly backed away from it. They've begun to modify that evaluation system, modify the percentages and stuff that the tests count. Tennessee has famously had some serious problems every year with implementation of those tests, validity of those tests, how we assess transparency with those tests. 
So would you say it's fair to say that a teacher in your situation today is less likely to be in that same hot seat? Yes, very much so. And the past couple of years we've had, because of the problems we've had in Tennessee with regard to implementation of the testing, we've had hold harmless, which means that no matter what the student's results, um, a teacher can't be fired for the results of the, te- the test. Right, right. And, and, you know, I know that some people have this attitude that, well, that's not fair. If a teacher's terrible, they ought to be held responsible <laughs> for the fact their kids aren't learning in their classroom. Well, the problem is that the tests aren't measuring for that. Right. So, right. like, there was a problem with the implementation of the tests. So the tests are not a valid measure anymore. So, okay. So you can't use them to to take away someone's, you know, form of earning a living. Right, but devil's advocate. Some okay. people would say, okay, right. But we can make instruments that do measure that. Oh, yeah. And shouldn't we then use those to determine the teacher's efficacy? And if they're not, or every year maybe we take the bottom 10% and just call those and get some new teachers in so that we have, I mean, that's what Bill Gates advocated. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? Yeah, what's wrong with that? Well, <laughs> first of all, what kind of tests are you going to get to measure how successful a teacher is? Like, really, what kind of test is there? You get a test like for U.S. history. Are you going to measure whether a student learns names and dates and locations? Or are you going to test whether or not they learned how to think critically and historically? And if you do that, how do you best assess um, what a student learned? So is it going to be essay? Is it going to be project-based? Is it going to be multiple choice? Well, you always go to multiple choice because it's the easiest. But multiple choice means names and dates and locations, but not critical thinking, not problem solving, not historical thinking, not not the stuff that will actually help them be successful in terms of innovation and invention in their jobs. It, it's not the kind of skills that an employer is going to want to look at, that a college is really going to want to look at. So do you want to measure how successful a teacher is in helping these students pass these tests? You want to fire them based upon how great they are in helping a student pass the test. I, I just don't know that that's valid because there are so many different ways to be an excellent teacher and there's more to teaching than helping a student memorize names and dates and facts. So, I mean, it's, there's art to it as well. There's actual human connection. There are soft skills that have to be developed and learned over time. A person who isn't a great teacher their first year or their second year can still end up being a great teacher. I mean, I would say that I was not the best freaking teacher in the world my first year or second year. I made some big mistakes in terms of implementation, in terms of relationships with colleagues, in terms of relationships with students. Like, not like tragic or illegal kinds of things, but, you know, mistakes that I wouldn't make now, like yelling at a student because I got frustrated. Or... Yeah, like at a colleague because I got frustrated, you know. Especially, so, would you? Are, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm probably misunderstanding you, but it sounds like you're saying that experience matters. For experience teachers. definitely matters with teachers, and these skills can be learned. The things that go into making a great teacher a great teacher are learned over time through experience, through mistakes, through risk taking. And it has to be okay for a teacher to to take risk in the classroom, to make mistakes in the classroom, as long as they can fix it and, you know, you're not harming students. Which is why tenure matters. Which is why tenure matters. <laughs> tenure matters an awful lot. But we don't 
you know, we have a very different type of tenure now than than traditional tenure in Tennessee. So. Right, sure. And the same with Wisconsin. Is I feel like those two states, for whatever reason, ended up pursuing a similar path with regard yeah. to education policy. Um, Tennessee is, 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 um, is definitely one of those states that is a leader in terms of educational innovation, but on the conservative anti-union bent. So mm-hmm. what was happening in Tennessee was then copied in Florida and Wisconsin within a year or two of it happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although Florida had its own missteps under Jeb Bush with the A plus education plan. So they're all feeding off of each other in this mm-hmm. weird petri dish of yep. stupid ideas about how to run schools. <laughs> what would you say has surprised you most or been most rewarding or most interesting that you've learned or discovered as president of a union covering a lot of schools, a lot of teachers? Over 3,300 teachers, 43 schools. The thing that surprised me the most was that I could do it. I never saw myself as a leader of other teachers and being able to use some of those soft skills to approach board members, to advocate for certain positions and policies, to lead a meeting to make a room full of adults laugh. Like, I feel comfortable in in a room full of students because I know what the expectation is. I know how to make them laugh. I know how to help them engage. But being able to use those same skills in a a room full of adults was was intimidating. And I found out I could. So, (laughs) personal discovery, really. And I learned more about organizing groups of people and how hard it is to keep adults motivated. Sometimes it's way harder to keep adults motivated and engaged and focused on on solving the, the issue that we're working on than it is a group of students. You taught for a few years before you became a parent. Yes. How did that change your perspective as an educator? the most tangible way that it changed my perspective was it made me hate homework. I absolutely hate homework and do not assign it anymore. Any ever? Are you including like reading in that? No, I do not include reading. Are you talking about like worksheets and... Yeah, I just don't do it. Um, I feel like it's a a phenomenal waste of student time beyond, beyond reading. So what we learn in my class, we learn in my class. And if a student struggles with what we learned in class, they have their time at home and remedial assignments if they want them to go back and relearn. In my class, the way that I have it set up is that there is absolutely no limit to how many times a student can attempt to learn content. So if a student is trying to understand, I don't know, the law of supply or the law of demand in in economics and how those two interact with each other, and I've taught it once, right, and they didn't get it, well, they get to go back and self-teach. So there's the quiz that I give them that's on the specific content points. You understand this, you know, nuance, you understand this aspect. And so my tests are very pointed um, to help indicate where a student really understands it and where they might need some additional support. So they take this quiz and then they get to go back and look at their results, right? And they get to see what they got right, what they got wrong. Then they're supposed to go back and do targeted self-study where they get to use worksheets, notes, foldables, the textbook, whatever they need to do to sort of self-remediate. They get a second attempt to take the quiz on their own. Okay. If they fail it that second time, or they don't get the score that they want that second time, they can they come back and they have to do one-on-one tutoring with me so that I go back and assess and look at what they got right, 
and then I give them, you know, very targeted, specific to them kinds of assignments. And usually that does it. So they get that third attempt. I, I've never had a kid need a fourth. What did that have to do with you being a parent? Okay, so in terms of being a parent, this sort of came out of that. I don't feel like my my kids should only get one attempt to get it right. My job is to help them get where they need to be. And I know as a parent, it sometimes takes 20 different attempts. I mean, sometimes they get it on the first time. Sometimes it takes, you know, a year of struggle to get them where they need to be. And um, I want I want my, my kids' teachers to have that same kind of compassion for their difference and not let their journey to learning be, I don't know, permanently punished by some stupid C or D or F on their cumulative report card. I mean, in in my class, if a kid comes back the next semester and says, you know what, I really want to try to get an A in your class because I need it so I can qualify for a scholarship, right? And they want to go back and do work that they had completed the first semester with me because it's only a semester long class. I've done that before. You know, like, sure, you failed this unit, so go back and learn this unit or learn this part of the unit and I'll go back and change your report card grade. I've done it a year later for uh, one student. Like in terms of my job as a teacher, my job is to help them get where they wanna be and I'm willing to partner with my my students no matter whether they're in my class or not because you know, I'm always gonna be their, their econ teacher, right? In terms of homework, when my son was in elementary school, there was so much homework that came that came in that required my involvement. And I'm like, I'm exhausted and I have papers to grade and dinner to cook and a bedtime story to read to, you know, your little sister and, 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 and. And now I have to, I don't know, glue cotton balls to some construction paper for you? (laughs) Like, no. If you can't do it on your own, it's just not going to get done. So there's that part. I hate homework for that reason, that, that, that those fluff pieces. If my students are doing work at home, it's because they are doing in their own individualized remediation because they need that extra time to get it. That's what homework should be. Not everybody should have to do it. Um, students who need extra time, extra effort, extra whatever, they get that. And those are my kids who do homework. And occasionally, yeah, I'll assign readings and stuff to do as well. For my AP macroeconomic students, it's a little bit different, but it's still mostly reading that they're doing at home. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about real quick is the choral group that you're involved with. You've been involved, what's the name of the group? Nashville and Harmony. Right. And how long have you been involved with that? 10 years. 10 years. What's the sort of mission of that organization? (laughs) Well, Nashville and Harmony is Tennessee's only LGBTQ plus chorus, um, also allies. It's soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and the mission is to use music to build community and create social change. And you've gone from being, again, a rank-and-file member of that organization Mm -hmm. to taking on other responsibilities. Yeah. Taking on other titles, so to speak. Do you see there being, I mean, community building, community outreach is obviously partly an educative process. Mm -hmm. Do you see other links between your job, your day job and your sort of work in that organization? Yeah, so I mean, of course, there's, there's always learning and discussion. And I still sort of like this dialectic approach to, to history where you have these two forces coming together and creating something new, right? Music is a way to communicate ideas, to, to find what we have in common, to find where we are different and to create a, a dialogue about those. 
and to create something new based upon those new understandings. Music is a, is a great medium for that. The other connection, of course, is Nashville and Harmony has started a youth chorus called the Major Minors, and I am its program director. So I helped to help to found that. It started in 2017. Um, so it's just finished our first full year. And I helped to put together the calendar, pick repertoire, market, <laughs> find students who are interested, talk to parents, have parent meetings, organize concerts. Um, and so that connection to teenagers, you know, that ages 12 to 18, and, and my day job is, is definitely there. And in my role as a high school teacher, I've been GSA sponsor for my school. It's uh, the Gay Straight Alliance. I've been that sponsor now for years. So to be able to take some of those skills of working with the LGBTQ teen community and to apply them in, in my choral life, in my personal life, and to create a new program and outlet for those students to be seen and heard and to find community and family has been a really powerful experience. I think it's actually probably one of the most important things I've ever done. So two questions to follow up with that real quick. Have you, so your son Max is involved with the yes. choir? Is it awkward for you to sort of be one of the people running that youth choir and to have him as a participant? I, I thought that there might be some awkwardness. For the most part, we, we've worked our way through like those, those moments. I very much appreciate who Max is and am fine with him being who he is. <laughs> and so the only part, the only trouble we occasionally have is because I am program director, I'm the first one there and the last one out. And... He has to wait around for me, and that annoys him. <laughs> I'm going to hitchhike home, Mom. It doesn't ever come up where, like, there's roles being assigned or something, and there's a nervousness about him getting a certain position because of who he knows. I mean, I don't you know. No, we haven't, thing. haven't really had that so much. Not yet. like the Simpsons where Homer's the coach and everyone else is cut. Bart's <laughs> not cut. Oh, what a surprise. Bart didn't get cut. A surprise. Mm. Uh, yeah, I always give him the solo. <laughs> and no. <laughs> get out there and sing. I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm more willing to ask him to do stuff, but he'll, he tells me no <laughs> all the time. Sure. Um, that's, a, that's a word he learned fairly early. For instance... I want more, I want to develop more student leadership in the major minors. So one of the things that I wanted to do is to have students take over the social media, um, take over Instagram, Twitter, and, and Facebook. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman. I'm just not real good at that kind of stuff. How do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> Don't be square. Join the major minors. <laughs> and so, you know, of course I asked Max if he would he'd be interested in doing it and he's like ah no so you know then I asked other people or more recently we had WNPT National Public Television decided to do a a piece on the major minors and so they wanted to interview me they wanted to interview some of the the singers you know I offered it to everybody right and one of the other singers was like yes I want to do this make Max. sure you get my good side <laughs> I was like and Max do you want to do this as well and he's like oh yeah sure sometimes I feel like he feels more pressure to be supportive of me and what I'm doing because you know he's my kid um but I I'm He's not getting special treatment. Of course. I'm except, just... except a lot more personal attention because he has to ride in the car with me there and back. So, sure. You've been involved with National Harmony, you said, for 10 years? 10 years. There's a sense in which some of the more complacent parts of American society seem to think, okay, look, marriage equality, done. Mm -hmm. Gays in the military, done. Like, the bulk of this struggle is over, yeah? 
and obviously we get daily reminders that it's not. How did the Pulse nightclub shooting affect your chorus? Oh my God. It was a moment of intense vulnerability. I felt fragile. I felt raw. I felt um, terrified and angry. I remember one of my friends, he hit every club after that. He's like, I dare somebody, you know, to try to silence me. And I definitely felt that. I was definitely out more. So I didn't want that fear to take root and to to silence me. Um, And I think that having Nashville and Harmony there was, was, it was so important to me feeling safe again because there's safety in numbers all of the people that i that i love were horrified by that that act by the all those deaths but the lgbt community that i was part of i mean it was really personal and i remember reaching out to to other people who identify like i do and just like are you feeling these things and they're like yes oh my gosh yes this is how i'm feeling right now and it's just like okay I'm not alone. I'm not alone, so I don't have to be afraid, so I don't have to, you know, I had a place to speak. I also remember the silence, the deafening silence of of people who are not allies, of my family, and my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my mom. That hurt. It really hurt. And I think that a lot of people felt that, that silence and pain. Do you remember anything about the first show that the group did after that incident? I can't imagine a situation where that wouldn't be a different kind of show, a different kind of energy in it. I think that we had just finished a show Mm. right before the shooting, like the week before. It was the Fiesta show. Mm. But Pride Week was, you know, the week after. Mm -hmm. So the Pulse Nightclub shooting was the 12th, I believe, of June. And... So we had the build-up to Pride, which is in Nashville. It's um, you know, it's a day-long festival. Like it's not just a it's a march, no floats or anything. It's a march, and then um, you know, taking over the public square and booths and music and all kinds of entertainment. But there was a Pride spirituality night, and we and Nashville and Harmony was invited to participate and to sing. And um, our artistic director Don was asked to speak. And I remember suddenly everybody was involved. People who who weren't stopping in the street for a queer person, they were suddenly clamoring to participate, which was kind of nice, but it was also weird. I remember one speaker talking about, you know, how he'd never given much thought to the gay community (laughs) until Pulse. And it's like, why are you telling a room full of gay people that you didn't care about us until last week when we were dying like where were you in the 80s when we were dying where were you when we keep getting beaten up and killed and murdered and uh like you know we've been dying all along right. thanks for noticing right. i don't know I, I don't know why that person was allowed to speak so there, there was weirdness like that pride that year was much more subdued people were were afraid to come out but then they came out anyway i mean there was this this ferocity among the people where they're like this will not so I mean it was very similar in terms of in terms of that emotional feeling to what happened after September 11th I was just thinking about the book Arab in America by Tufi Al Rasi where he talks about his friends some of them 
feeling the need to assimilate more and some of them feeling the need to become more clear in their mm-hmm. uh, performative elements of their Muslim identity. Yeah, I would definitely say that, that in terms of the performative ele- elements of being queer, being out, of being seen and visible in the community, uh, that's where I saw people going. They were like, no, I'm going to be even louder now, even prouder now. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're going to have to get used to it now. Even more <laughs> like, so. even more so, like, we're definitely not going to go away. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't kill us all. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was sadness, but oh, there was... People were so fierce. Do you remember what you sang? No. In terms of, again, sort of playing devil's advocate here, okay, the phrase you used just now, you can't kill us all. In the minds of a lot of conservative people, they will say, oh, look, that guy was mentally ill, claiming identity with ISIS. That's not the, you know, representation of people who disapprove of the gay lifestyle. And, and aren't you being extreme when you talk about you can't kill us all and trying to link it to somebody who just doesn't want to make a cake for someone? What, how do, how do you I, respond to I that? didn't make that link in anything that I just said, Eric. Of course not. <laughs> but why is it necessary to say you can't kill us all? It's necessary to... You can't hate somebody and think of them as your equal. You know, uh, hatred dehumanizes. Um, and when you dehumanize someone, it makes it easier to kill them. So, denying the the, the absolute humanity of another human of of a person, denying that they can experience love, and that that love is okay, and every bit is and beautiful valid. as any other love. Yeah, valid, right. beautiful, and deserving of a goddamn cake. Right, and deserving of a cake. <laughs> Um, is I mean it's a problem. I you know I respect people uh, people's ability to practice their religion. But if you're not going to go off shellfish, then it doesn't make sense to. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to. People pick and choose what they want to think all the time when it comes uh, to to uh, what's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> As, I mean, blended clothing, right, shellfish, right, right. stoning people. I mean, they pick and choose. But, Fine. I mean, we. What we're, what we're talking about is cultural. Right. It's cultural. And I think a lot of people really confuse, they get really muddled in their thinking when it comes to the culture of Christianity in America versus the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we have a culture that practices intolerance and not love. We have a culture that practices judgment as opposed to redemption Amen. and grace. Yeah. We have a culture that is okay with dehumanizing people, dehumanizing human beings, uh, denying their their worth, their value, their their soul, and um, categorizing and putting people in different and having unequal power between people. Mm-hmm. I think you've probably answered this to an extent, but I wonder if there's other elements to it you wanted to address. What's your favorite thing about teaching? Torturing. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> torturing teenagers is my favorite oh, thing yes. to do. I tell people that I am a purveyor of 8 a.m. magic because I can take a room of 30 kids at, you know, 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning and make them excited about learning economics. Like, that is freaking magic. And being able to, to actually do that is really edifying. I have the biggest freaking grin on my face right now i do i I enjoy sharing new ideas with people and making them excited about it 
Thank you very much for all of that. I always like to end the interviews by asking the interviewee what song you would like to go out on. It might be something by a band, or maybe there's something from National Harmony I can splice in. Well, if you're going to splice in some National and Harmony stuff, you might as well do our theme song, Why We Sing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for this. You're welcome. A sound of hope, a sound of peace, a sound that celebrates and speaks what we believe, a sound of love, a sound so strong, it's amazing what is given when we share a song.